picking up once more with my series on 2 Corinthians tonight as we get to chapter 10 now of the letter. There's a significant shift in tone that comes between chapters 9 and 10. And in fact, the shift is so strong that some have supposed that what we have in chapters 10 through 13 must be a completely different letter than what we have had up until that point. They suppose that Paul wrote one letter, which consists of what we have in 2 Corinthians chapters 1 through 9, and then he wrote another letter that consisted in chapters 10 through 13, and that some later editor lopped off the end of the first letter and the beginning of the second letter and stuck them together, creating what we now call 2 Corinthians. While a number of academic and uh, secular commentators have gone in this direction, there are multiple reasons to reject this view, not least of which being that the canonical letter has arrived to us in this united form and that there's no manuscript evidence of these chapters being separated. I won't get into the details tonight, but I'll simply say that it often seems that there's an impulse in, secular, in the secular academic world to fracture the Bible whenever possible, to see every change in tone, every instance of literary complexity as evidence of a sloppy cut-and-paste job rather than an intentional literary or rhetorical device. There's been some backing away from this approach in recent generations, but we should still be wary of the impulse to tear asunder what God has joined together. It often says more, I think, about the reader than about the text. Moreover, Paul Barnett, whose commentary I found helpful throughout this series, once again gives us, I think, a much more convincing lens through which to view the shift in tone that happens at this point in the letter. He writes, It appears that, as the letter draws to its conclusion, Paul's appeal to the Corinthians becomes more intense emotionally. Like many an orator and preacher, he has kept the most urgent and controversial matters until the end and dealt with them passionately so that his last words make their greatest impact on the Corinthians. And so we enter now that emotionally heightened section of the letter tonight. So with that in mind, let's hear from our text, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. Paul writes, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. This is God's word for us this evening. 
To understand what's going on here and what Paul is responding to, we need to review a bit of the background on Paul's relationship with the Corinthians at this point. Now, we've gone over some of this before, but some of it was over two years ago when I preached on earlier portions of 2 Corinthians, so I'll refresh your memories in case you've forgotten. From the first chapter of this letter of 2 Corinthians, we can reconstruct Paul's interactions with the Corinthians up to this point. Paul's last visit to the Corinthian church did not go well. There were serious problems. There was opposition to Paul. There was needed discipline that was not taking place. And it was not resolved by the time Paul left. Paul told them that he would visit the church two more times to try to straighten these issues out. But while he was away, he decided instead to send a letter to them, what he calls his severe letter, a letter which is now lost to us. And he decided that he would then visit them after they had responded to that letter. And so by the time he's writing 2 Corinthians, Paul has already sent that severe letter. It has mostly accomplished what he wanted it to, and now Paul is preparing to visit the Corinthian church once more. But after these interactions, critics, or, or, or old critics with a new criticism, have risen up. Opponents of Paul are now critiquing the way that he has interacted with the Corinthian church. They say in verse 1 that he is humble when present, but bold when away. They say in verses 9 and 10 that by letter he is frightening and strong, but when he's physically present, he's weak and of no account. One commentator puts it like this. He says that they were portraying Paul as at once a coward and a bully. When physically present, they said that he was a coward, that he was timid and feeble, unable to straighten out things during his visit to the church. And they say that by letter, he was a bully, telling them what to do and coming down harshly. This is the accusation that's leveled at Paul by some in the Corinthian church. Paul denies these charges. We'll get to his denial of them in a minute. But before we do, I think it's worth pausing and reflecting on the charges themselves. Because accusing someone in Paul's position of cowardice or bullying, or in this case both, is clearly a charge that seemed to resonate with the larger Corinthian church. It seemed to them like it might be plausible. In fact, I think it doesn't seem that far-fetched to us either. We might not entertain it about Paul, but we certainly consider such accusations about others. So why is that? Well, I think these charges that are leveled are plausible because they're so often true. So often when ministering to others, when discipling them or evangelizing to them, we're tempted into one of these two directions, or sometimes a combination of both. On the one hand, we are tempted to cowardice. We're tempted to cower from opposition, to run away from conflict, to avoid raising any eyebrows, to not rock the boat too much. And so in our own ways, we're tempted to be feeble and timid and cowardly, the very things that Paul here is accused of. We've seen other Christians do it. We've done it ourselves. And so it's no shock to us that Christians are tempted to act cowardly when they're in a hostile environment. On the other hand, we're at other times tempted towards a sort of bullying, towards arrogance and brash boldness. We're tempted to try to demolish those that we are to minister to rather than to lovingly confront them. We're prone to try to firebomb the opposition 
rather than take them captive in order to deliver them to Christ. And we can see this in a variety of relationships of ministry, whether we're discipling another Christian or sharing the gospel with a non-Christian. We can see this in many churches. Some, on the one hand, shirk back from naming sin as sin, and so in cowardice they allow their flock to embrace sin and error. Others, on the other hand, condemn those outside of their narrow sect of Christianity with such brashness and venom that there is no concern that any of the people that they're talking about will ever actually enter their doors. We see these two temptations also, I think, in our parenting, the discipling of our children. As Pastor Abram pointed out recently in a sermon, we can all too easily see our failures as parents and particularly as disciplinarians as we respond to our children's sins and patterns that are often too harsh or too lax or often a combination of both. Overly lax one minute and then overly harsh later on as we try to compensate for our earlier failing. We see it also in our relationships with other Christian friends or those that we are trying to mentor. As we're tempted to respond to their sins sometimes with just a cowardly shrug, and other times with uncaring or overly harsh words. And finally, we see it in our relationships with non-Christians, too. Most of us can think of those times that would have been perfect for us to share our faith with a non-Christian friend. But we didn't do it. And we kick ourselves afterwards for cowardly saying nothing. And at the same time, many of us can also remember those times when we brashly thrust the subject of our faith into a conversation in a way that wasn't at all helpful, leading only to confusion and frustration. Cowardice or brashness, they are common temptations for us, and they are what the Corinthians here accuse Paul of. But in this case, Paul tells them that they are actually wrong. As tempting as acting these ways are, Paul insists that he has not fallen into either pattern in his interactions with the Corinthians. Instead of cowardly retreat or brash attempts at annihilation, Paul tells them that his approach has been different. He tells them that he has engaged in what we might call, using his words almost, gentle siege warfare or spiritual siege warfare. Now I realize that especially the first way of putting that makes it sound like a bit of a contradiction. What is gentle warfare? We need to figure that out, and we need to figure that out primarily because that's how Paul is describing his ministry here. In verse 1, he says that he is following the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And in verses 3 through 6, he says that he is engaged in warfare. So we need to find out how these two things go together, what that means. And I think that the word in the middle there might be part of the key. That Paul here is waging gentle siege warfare. That Paul is talking about siege warfare becomes apparent in verses 4 and 5. Paul talks about warfare, but when we look at his words closely, we begin to see that he's not talking about open warfare in a battlefield. The battle he describes is one where Paul attacks not camps or enemy lines of soldiers, but strongholds. We read that in verse 3. It is a battle where Paul must destroy towers and ramparts that have been raised up against his ministry, as we read in verse 5. And it's a warfare that's not concerned primarily with winning the battle so much as taking captive the residents of the city, 
as we read also in verse 5. As others have pointed out, Paul here does not give us a series of military-themed snapshots, but he's giving us an elaborate metaphor of siege warfare. Paul says that his ministry looks like spiritual, divinely empowered, and gentle siege warfare. So what exactly does that mean? Well, I think the best way to answer that question may be to take a closer look at the metaphor as Paul develops it in this text. And as we consider that, as we look at this, the first thing that should strike us is that siege warfare is not quick and easy. It's long-term. Such would be evident in the ministry of Paul. His dealings with the Corinthians were not a flash in the pan. They were long-term dealings. He had been working with them over the long haul with visits and with letters. This comes out a bit even in our text. He stops for a moment in verse 7, you might notice, and he tells them to look around themselves, to look at what is right before their eyes. And as they were gathered to hear this letter read aloud, the thing that would have been right before their eyes was the Corinthian congregation, the Christians in Corinth, the congregation that Paul was instrumental in establishing. His ministry to them was long-term, and the evidence was right before their eyes which makes the metaphor of siege warfare so appropriate for him to use. Siege warfare was usually a long-term commitment in the ancient world. It wasn't over quickly. The siege of Carthage in the 2nd century B.C. took around two and a half years. The siege of Jerusalem that happened in 70 A.D. had not yet happened when Paul wrote this letter, but considering that siege, which we have a bit more information about, still gives us a sense of what Roman siege warfare looked like in Paul's time period. An example of the kind of warfare that Paul seems to have in mind here. When the Romans besieged Jerusalem, they set up for the long haul. Desmond Seward in his book, Jerusalem's Traitor, describes the legionary camps the Romans built for the siege. They were long-term camps. As much a fortified town as a camping ground, he says. They included two broad main streets with a number of smaller roads on a grid. They had specific areas designated for sleeping, for eating, for washing, for drills. There were ovens, storage depots, drains, rubbish pits, latrines, a wagon park, horse lines, and a smithy. And sometimes there were also wooden towers and stone walls if they felt it was necessary. Seward comments that, comments talking about the siege on Jerusalem, about what it must have been like for the Jews when the Romans began to set up camp. He writes, Watching from the ramparts of Jerusalem, the defenders were horrified when they saw the besiegers starting to erect what looked like three small cities around Jerusalem. When the Romans carried out siege warfare, they brought to it a patient, long-term perspective. Paul saw his ministry in the same way. He was aimed at the long-term and not the immediate results. So we need to ask ourselves if we see ministry that way as well. And what would it look like if we did? I think for one thing, it looks like the church that is thinking about not only what their numbers or their health are looking like right now, or even in a year, but in 10 years, in 20 years, and in the next generation and the generation after that. I think it looks like the Christian parent who does not give or into or at least resists 
the despair that comes at the end of a difficult day or week or month for the children. But also, on the other hand, it does not give in to overconfidence at the end of a good day or week, but who patiently keeps their vision set on the long-term goal of raising faithful and loving Christian children over years and decades. It's the Christian who patiently bears with the failings of their Christian friend once more, who patiently bears with their non-Christian friend's resistance to Christ or mockery of the gospel once more, and doesn't give up, but stays by their side. To what extent is that us? Have we set up camp besides those whom we hope to love and to serve and to minister to? Or if we're honest, are we often hoping for results from a sort of drive-by ministry? Paul didn't think he could create results that way. And we should be wary of thinking that we can see results faster than he did. So gentle siege warfare patiently sets its eyes on the long term. But Paul goes on. He goes on in verse 4 to say, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now Paul here is, of course, saying that his weapons are not physical. They're not according all either to the sinful patterns of this world, but they're divinely powered by the Holy Spirit. But while making that point, he also continues his siege metaphor and tells us more about how these spiritual weapons work. And what he says is that they are spiritual weapons designed for destroying strongholds. They are like the weapons used to break down a fortress in a siege. It's worth reflecting on how one of the chief weapons used by the Romans at that time to crack open a stronghold was the battering ram. Desmond Seward describes the Roman battering ram like this. He writes that it was a huge bulk of timber, like the mast of a ship. Its end fitted with a massive piece of iron in the shape of a ram's head, which was slung by ropes from scaffolding on wheels. Repeatedly pulled back by a team of men, then hurled forward the iron head to demolish most sorts of masonry. When the attack with the battering rams began on Jerusalem, During the Roman siege, Seward writes, Suddenly, the tremendous thudding of the rams against the walls echoed throughout the city, terrifying everyone within. These battering rams were powerful. After they broke through the first wall of Jerusalem, the Romans began pounding on the second wall with their battering rams. We're told that the blows from the battering rams were so powerful that they shook not only the stone wall itself, but also buildings that stood some distance behind it, frightening even the military leaders of the Jewish zealots. Yet despite their power, Josephus also tells us that in order to break through the second wall of Jerusalem, the Romans hammered away at the masonry of the wall with their biggest battering ram for days. It wasn't a matter of minutes, as we often see in movies. It wasn't even a matter of hours, but it took days. Days of pounding away. Days of just thud, thud, thud against the wall. Tens, and then hundreds, and then thousands of times. This is the picture that Paul is evoking of his ministry. Not just patience, but also persistence. Willingness to do the same thing again, and again, and again, 
like a repetitive thud in order to break down a stronghold. This is the approach of the church that is willing to do the same things again and again as they gather, to pray, to confess their sins, to hear once more from God's word, to be fed once more at his table. It's also the church that's willing to come back to the same biblical truths again and again from the pulpit, not in a lazy and repetitive way, but in a way where they know that these are the truths that must be applied persistently over and over again, like that thud, thud of a battering ram to their hearts to break down the strongholds that they know are there. This is the parent who's willing to go through the same correction with their children again and again, not merely disciplining them, but also instructing them to say for what feels like the thousandth time, for what maybe is the thousandth time, our words need to be both loving and true. What was what you said loving and true? And what do you need to do differently next time? Again and again, walking them through the pattern of repentance, every time like a thud on the stronghold of their hearts. It's the friend who's willing once more to remind their fellow Christian that in Christ they really are forgiven and to walk once more through the path of repentance with them and help them see afresh what it should look like. Or it's the friend who's willing once more to explain to their non-Christian friend why they live their lives and view their lives differently than they do. It's the repetitive thud of proclaiming the gospel to someone in normal, ordinary, everyday life. In the end, Paul is telling us that that is what takes down strongholds. The question put before us is if we're willing to do that work in our day-to-day lives. Are we willing to accept divinely empowered gifts that don't take down strongholds with a flash and a bang, but that work through persistence. Spiritual weapons that we must lay hold of again and again with a persistent thud hundreds or thousands of times before we begin to see a crack in the masonry in someone's heart. So Paul tells us first that his spiritual siege warfare is patient. He tells us here that it's also persistent. He goes on. In verse 5, he adds the next element. He writes, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Some of Paul's imagery here is a little harder to see through the translation. Paul Burnett points out that the word translated destroy here is a compound word in the Greek meaning pull down. In other words, Paul is saying, in a sense, we pull down arguments and every high opinion lifted up against the knowledge of God. What the Corinthians have erected against fuller knowledge of God, Paul knows he must pull down as part of his spiritual siege warfare. This would seem to be pointing us to a thoroughness that's important in siege warfare and in ministry. The besieging army must not just break into the strongholds, but often they need to tear all or part of them down as well so that they can't be reoccupied by those they are besieging. In the siege of Jerusalem, for example, when the Romans did break through that second wall, they did not immediately knock down a bigger section of the wall. They walked through what had been opened, and then they tried to negotiate surrender with the zealots. In response, the Jewish zealots regrouped and attacked from the remaining houses and ramparts that were not taken down. The Romans temporarily were driven out, and it took four more days for them to once again breach the second wall for a second time. 
That second time, they did not make the same mistake. They tore down a larger section of the wall that was set up, preventing the zealots from returning to it. Paul, similarly, was not satisfied with merely having a breakthrough with those he ministered to. He knew that ministry required follow-through. He knew his work was not done until he had not only broken through a stronghold in those he ministered to, but had also torn down everything that they had erected in their hearts and their minds and their lives against the knowledge of Christ. Are we so thorough with those we minister to, whether our fellow church members, our children, or our friends? How often have we stepped back from a struggle in their lives because we see a little bit of progress and we assume that everything must be okay, when in reality, there was far more work to be done in ministering to and loving them? How often have we been surprised because someone we knew seemed to have a positive breakthrough and then they quickly went back to their old ways? Despite that momentary breach, they they quickly returned to those things they had raised up in the past against the knowledge of Christ. What would it look like for us to follow through on those things? And so Paul shows us that a spiritual siege war for his ministry is patient, it is persistent, it includes thorough follow-through, and next we see what its goal is. In the second half of verse 5, Paul continues, saying that he and those ministering beside him take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul, in context, does not seem to be talking primarily about his own thoughts. He seems to be talking about those he is ministering to. Commentators point out that the Greek translated here, every thought, can also mean every mind or every human design. Paul is not here focusing on his own thoughts, but on the minds and the thoughts of the people he ministers to. And wherever the emphasis is put, the overall picture that Paul is bringing up is of him taking those he ministers to, taking the people, taking their minds, taking their thoughts, and taking them all captive. And why is he doing that? Well, he tells us he's doing it so that he can bring them as prisoners to be subjects of Christ. Barnett points out that Paul here is evoking a picture with himself as a military general who takes fortified rebels captive and brings them into submissive obedience to the conquering king who is Christ. The thing to notice in all of that is that Paul is not capturing people and minds and thoughts to make them his own. He's capturing them to make them Christ's. He is merely the servant. And the first thing he does when he has a new prisoner is to bring them to Christ, the true king. And I think we can often get a bit mixed up and act as if we are the king who should get the obedience. We can be tempted in our churches to want to see people convert and grow and develop in the faith for the sake of our church, rather than for the sake of Christ and his broader kingdom. With our children, we can easily make their obedience and their character and their faithfulness ultimately about their loyalty and allegiance and service to us, rather than to Jesus. And when we minister to others, we can get far too caught up in how their success or failure will reflect on us. But Paul here points out that he holds no prisoners for himself. Paul collects no devotees. He, he has no order of servants who pledge to obey him. 
Paul brings all whom he has success with to Jesus, the true king, and he makes them Christ's. Finally, as we look through this text, we get to the last stage Paul lays out in his siege warfare. We see that in verses 6 and 8. In verse 6, Paul describes the division of those who are captured. Some, upon capture, willingly obey the king. Others continue in rebellion and disobedience. It's worth pausing to note that. Even after the strongholds are broken, even after the ramparts are torn down, still some will persist in disobedience. Paul says that they will face judgment and punishment. Judgment, we must say, will ultimately be meted out by Christ. But that group is not the focus of what Paul goes on to talk about. Paul goes on to address what will be done with those who, upon capture, come to greater obedience to the king. They are, of course, his prisoners. They did, of course, at one point stand against him. And so the question is, what will be done with them? Will they be degraded and mistreated as so many prisoners of the Romans often were? Well, of course, no, they will not. Paul tells us the ultimate purpose of all of this, his ultimate mission in all of this, he describes it in verse 8. There he tells them of the authority he's been given in Christ's army. That it is authority, he says, which the Lord gave me for building you up and not for destroying you. Paul's warfare is for building people up in Christ. That is the goal. Paul was therefore not a coward, as some in Corinth claimed, when he refused to crush or ruthlessly attack those who rebelled against him. Destruction was simply not one of his objectives. So he did not try to obliterate his opponents who had opposed him. At the same time, neither was he going to let the rebellion continue. He was focused on long-term goals. He was going to batter down their defenses. He was going to tear down the barriers they had set up, and he was going to recapture their thoughts and minds and bring them to Christ the King once more. That was the goal of the severe letter. It wasn't to bully them into obedience to Paul, but to capture them once more into obedience to Christ. Where do you need to consider the picture that Paul sets before us in your life? What relationship do you need to apply this to? Where have you been far too prone to cowardly or lazy inaction on the one hand or frustrated anger or bullying on the other? Where do you keep hoping for a quick fix when you really need to set up camp next to someone for the long haul, to minister the gospel to them with a persistent thud of a battering ram, to follow through when you make a little progress and to ultimately point them to Jesus and not to yourself? in order to build them up in Him. That's a much bigger project than we usually want in our lives. But it's the kind of ministry Paul endorses here. More than that, it's the kind of ministry that Paul says receives its power not from us, but from God. Because ultimately, only God can bring down the walls of the hearts, the walls of the hearts that are set against Him. Now, Paul gives us this picture. He gives us this metaphor for his ministry. But we need to notice also where he gets it. We need to notice that he does not come up with this approach to ministry on his own. Paul begins verse 1 of this section by telling the Corinthians that he's entreating them not on his own, 
not by his own philosophy of ministry, but by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul is, as he elsewhere told the Corinthians, imitating Christ in his ministry. His approach comes not from himself, but from a consideration of the character and the ministry of Jesus. It is itself an attempt to follow in Christ's footprints. And as we think about it, isn't this the pattern, this pattern that we've just considered, isn't it exactly how Christ deals with us? Isn't it by this pattern that we have come to know and grow in Christ? Because Christ has encamped by our side for the long haul. Just as he bound himself to the patriarchs in spite of their shortcomings and failures, just as he made his dwelling place among the wandering Israelites despite the rebellion and their faithlessness, so now he has set up his camp beside us for the long haul. He has promised to be with us always to the very end of the age, and he has patiently remained there despite all the reasons that we've given him to move on. And close by us, Christ has also relentlessly pursued us. He's found the strongholds of sin in our lives, and he has persistently knocked down their walls. He has worn us down when we resisted him in our rebellion. He has proved to be more persistent than the walls that we have put up. David Foster Wallace once commented that acceptance is usually more a matter of fatigue than anything else. And as Christians, as we look back, I think, much of the important growth in our lives has come as Christ persistently battered the walls in our hearts, and finally, often through fatigue, those walls buckled, and we bowed down to his lordship in that area of our lives. Even those moments that seemed at the time like a sudden revelation, more often than not, were not really a sudden flash out of nowhere, but more like a sudden crumbling of a rampart after days or months or years of blows from Christ's battering ram. And as we look at what has resulted from those upheavals, we see that Christ did what he did not to destroy us, though we often resisted him as if that was his goal, but he did it to build us up. He came not to oppress us, but to liberate us. He came to free us from a tyrant and to make us his servants, servants of the one whose service is perfect freedom. Christ works through this kind of spiritual siege warfare. He works that way in our hearts. He works that way in our lives. He works that way in our churches and our relationships. And he works that way in the world at large. It's interesting to think how often people in this world have drawn the same conclusions about Christ as the Corinthians drew about Paul. He's weak and ineffective, and his time will soon be over. Or he's an oppressor who wants to bully those around him. But Christ is our meek and gentle warrior king. He has been laying siege to this world from the moment it rebelled against him. From Abel to Noah, from Abraham to the people of Israel, from the apostles to the church today, Christ has had his people and he has been besieging this world. He will destroy every last stronghold. He will throw down every high opinion lifted against the knowledge of him. He has already lovingly taken us captive and he is not done taking captives yet. Let us do our part then to join him in his siege warfare. 
both among ourselves as we drive one another closer to Christ and with those outside as we seek to bring them into the knowledge of Him. Let us boldly trust that He is the power behind every such interaction. And that though we may be the ones who are pulling back the battering ram and throwing it against the walls of others' hearts, with every thud that hits, it is ultimately Christ who is knocking. Amen.